I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Flora Gladwin. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimists. As a group of concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. And as a nonprofit organization, it's donations from listeners that enable us to educate and empower people to become climate advocates. So whether you're a longtime listener or you've just discovered us and you like what you hear, consider a donation that aligns with that value. Donating is easy. Just head over to our website, climateoptimist.co, and click the donate button. If you're not ready to become a donor, tell your friends and family about us and give us a review on your favorite streaming platform. On a related topic, we want to hear from you. If you've taken action lately to help the climate, have new ideas or even questions, drop us a note uh, on our website or social media. Yeah, we're hoping to start uh, talking about listener comments here on the show. So we need to hear from you first to make that happen. So take a moment after you've listened today and drop us a line. Mm-hmm. As I think most people can attest, climate change has impacted all of us in you know some way or another already. Whether it's you know been more extreme heat, living next to a wildfire or wildfire smoke or flooding, as the impacts intensify, though there are definitely certain areas out there that are facing the prospect of having to leave their homes completely. This is a near guarantee for some Pacific Island nations that are you know sitting near sea level. In other areas, climate impacts in combination with other factors like political instability are driving folks to move as well. Yeah. So how big of a problem is climate displacement and what can we actually do to minimize it? We're going to be exploring these questions and more on today's episode. But before we dive into that, let's talk about this week's reason for hope. Thanks, Flora. Young Australians have been pushing the Australian government to consider the climate implications for projects before approving them. In a bill that was introduced last year to the parliament um, by its sponsor, Senator David Pocock, this bill would force the government to consider implications, uh, the climate implications of any project with more than 100,000 tonnes of CO2 emissions over its lifetime. Um, As David Pocock said, uh, as a wealthy country on the global stage, we have a moral obligation to lead. So I am hoping that this uh, bill will get passed and we'll see some action come about because of it. Yeah, I love the the youth activism. feels a little bit similar to the lawsuit in Montana where youth were suing saying that the state there wasn't taking into account you know, the mm-hmm. environmental impacts of, of projects on their future. So yeah, it's good to see youth pushing and we should all be kind of joining the chorus because- as, as folks know, fossil fuel development hasn't stopped yet. Yeah, that was the uh, funny thing about this bill. It came about because the youth in Australia lost a federal court um, lawsuit about the expansion of a uh, of the Whitehaven coal mine in 2022. Um, but it's good to see that that drove them to push even harder rather than just take a step back. Yeah, we could all learn, that's for sure. Well, with that, let's uh, pivot to our guest who's joining us to explore climate displacement and approaches to minimizing it. Chris Fields is the director of the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. Uh, He's also a professor for interdisciplinary environmental studies at Stanford University. His research focuses on climate change, especially solutions that improve lives now, decrease the amount of future warming, and support vibrant economies. He was also co-chair of Working Group 2, 
of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change from 2008 to 2015 that published papers like Managing the Risk of Extreme Events and Disasters to Advance Climate Change Adaptation and Climate Change 2014, Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability. Chris holds a bachelor's degree in biology from Harvard College and a PhD in biology from Stanford. Yeah, I think it's tough to find somebody who could be more qualified to to speak on this topic. Chris, welcome to Climate Optimus. Thank you, Jason. So we'll start you off with a basic question we do everybody. When it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? There are really two things that make me optimistic about eventually dealing with climate crisis. The first is that we really have made substantial progress. When I started working seriously on climate 20 years ago, the expectation was that business as usual would get us to something like four to five degrees Celsius above pre-industrial. And in the latest assessments, the expectation is that business as usual, even without further policy progress, might get us to something like two and a half to three Celsius above pre-industrial. We're certainly not where we need to get, but that's an amazing amount of progress. Arguably, something like a third of the problem has already been solved as a consequence of some things that are put in place by policies for greater energy efficiency or greater use of renewables, and in some cases, simply by an advance of technology. It's a really important factor, and it's a really important foundation to use in starting this conversation. The second thing that gives me optimism is that we have a wide range of technologies for solving the climate problem, for decreasing the emission of the heat-trapping gases that are causing climate change. Technologies that are affordable, reliable, and safe, and in many ways provide co-benefits beyond the legacy technologies. We've made progress. We can make more progress. That's what gives me hope. It's, it's good to hear you put in that, that context. I think sometimes, myself included, it's sort of easy to look at what we have yet to do, right? And, and to say we're not where we need to be, which is a true statement, but not acknowledging the fact that we have made you know, substantial progress. So I guess to start things off, can you talk about sort of the scale of human placement that we're sort of forecast to see as, as a result of, of climate change? If we think about moving as a primary response to the impacts of a changing climate, we could be talking about a need to move for hundreds of millions of people. But we can also think about these impacts of climate change as being susceptible to a, to a wide range of response strategies where moving may not be the first best option. But there are clearly some places where the climate changes that have already occurred are creating huge pressure for displacement. And we're seeing that in, in climate-induced migration that's already occurring. And, and it is already having a profound influence in coastal communities that are subject to increased flooding from 
sea level rise, which adds to the storm surge and, and um, tropical cyclone effects. Some places are driving displacement as a consequence of increased variability in climate and um, decreased ability to consistently grow crops. We're even beginning to see displacement as a result of areas that are simply so hot that normal lifestyles are difficult to maintain. So the pressures for displacement are diverse, but the set of responses that can come to play before displacement occurs are, are also diverse. Even for the most clear driver of displacement, a rising sea level, there's still a tremendous amount that can be done in order to make it practical and even attractive for people to stay in the places that they call home. Uh, things like coastal protection, raising structures, moving houses or communities, only a few feet sometimes can really increase the level of safety. So it sounds like, you know, climate change already, the sort of the impacts we're seeing to date, you know, are causing a certain amount of displacement, that displacement could get significantly larger. But as you point out, you know, we really ought to look at it as, you know, last resort, but, you know, down the list in terms of options. How does sort of the level of warming kind of figure into that? It depends on how you think society evolves. You can look around the U.S. today and see that many of our big population centers are in areas that are fundamentally inconsistent with supporting as many people as they have now in the absence of uh, massive water redistribution efforts or massive deployment of air conditioning to make summer temperatures tolerable. And so when we look at areas that may be subject to pressures for displacement, we need to think about how that's realized in the context of how we respond. Uh, if we respond with ambitious deployment of protective mechanisms, then displacement may be really minimal. If we don't respond with any of those things, or if the impacts are occurring in parts of the world where the political and financial wherewithal aren't lined up to provide support, the displacement can really be substantial. If you look at the displacement that's occurring today, what you see is that in almost all cases, large-scale climate-influenced migration is also influenced by other factors, right. by poor governance, uh, by areas that are by being chronically impoverished. And in many cases, the pressures for displacement will involve evolve over a time span that's, that's really consistent with the deployment of a wide range of protective measures, including measures that don't require a whole bunch of advanced technology. An example that we often use in the climate adaptation world is that Bangladesh, very poor country, has done a spectacular job of protecting people from the effect of coastal cyclones with 
really basic technologies. Technologies that, for example, provide raised platforms for gathering livestock together, that provide a, a few structures where communities can gather that are protected from severe storm surge. We can provide really a lot of protection for a limited amount of money if we recognize what the problems are and get serious about solving them. Sure. Currently, what we're seeing is displacement from areas where little or nothing is being done to help people cope with the conditions they're experiencing. So would it be fair to say in a sense that, you know, first priority becomes making sure that those governments where you do have folks that are sort of more vulnerable and on the edge um, have the the resources, financial, you know, and otherwise to to help their population adapt. My greatest concern about our ability to deal with the climate crisis is that as climate change makes it more and more difficult for countries, especially poor countries, to have good governance and strong institutions, it becomes more and more challenging to put in place the kind of adaptation measures that we need. And it makes a total system failure, a stale, failed state outcome, a more likely outcome. And I think that international assistance to help maintain the capacity of governments, whether they're at the local or the national scale, is a really, really important part of preventing the system from spinning out of control. Well, when we're kind of talking about avoiding, let's say avoiding human displacement, do you envision, I mean, I'm trying to wrap my head around because it sounds like it'd be very complex, but what does the, what does sort of the planning process need to look like to help people kind of stay in the locations or stay in the places that they are today? One of the striking features of adaptation is that they're opportunities at almost every level. Many involve governments and the benefits of stacking together lots of different adaptation options are often profound. If you think about climate displacement that is, for example, driven by drought, one set of options is to provide access to more drought-resistant crop varieties. And there's been tremendous progress in that. The next series of interventions that really makes a difference is uh, de deployment of better tools for water management. And that can be wells for irrigation, reservoirs for water storage. At the next level, you can imagine that for areas that are too dry to consistently support agriculture, uh, maybe there are other economic opportunities. But in almost every setting, you can think of a whole series of interventions that decrease the pressure for displacement. N not in every setting, and people often talk about the special challenges of, of low-lying island states, and for the the people in those settings, the challenges 
are especially frustrating because the options for really staying in place in the context of a substantial sea level rise are very limited. So it's helpful to hear kind of your examples of kind of the the layers of things one can do sort of in the context of drought and sea level. You know, it made me think, I mean, are there other sort of primary drivers of displacement that we ought to be thinking about in the context of climate change? We're talking about sea level rise, talking about drought. I think at the beginning you mentioned heat. I guess what are those other potential drivers and and what kinds of um, examples have you are there for helping people stay in place? When I think about the kinds of climate-related drivers that could cause very large-scale displacement, the most important is probably coastal flooding. So many people live near coasts. Other kinds of flooding are potentially important. And of course, in the U.S., for example, many of the cases in which people file for FEMA flood insurance, for example, are, are from riverine flooding. So heavy precipitation and riverine flooding has caused a great deal of damage and a substantial amount of displacement. Drought can also be a really major driver of displacement. Risk of wildfire can be an important source of displacement. And in the Western U.S., where we've had horrific, catastrophic wildfires in the last few years, we've seen some immediate displacement as the as the fire advanced, but in many cases people haven't moved back after the after the fire is gone. So we've already seen some important wildfire displacement. And but there are other things that could in the future be causing displacement as well. High temperature in principle could and we are beginning to see temperatures that are so hot that it's essentially impossible for people to work outside or even to stay outside for extended periods. We could also see large-scale displacement that's associated with disease risks. So there are lots of different kinds of potential pressures for displacement, and there are lots of different strategies for dealing with those. I think it's going to be important as we go from stressor to stressor start with everyone by saying, what are the things that we might do to eliminate the necessity for people to move before we look hard at moving? So it sounds like a multitude of drivers. I mean, if I'm a local elected official or even, you know, state or beyond, is there a, a framework or a way to kind of think about these challenges on the horizon and to be able to prepare in a way that's strategic? With most climate change impacts, the most effective way to avoid the extreme impacts is to limit the amount of climate change that occurs. And a subtext for this whole conversation should be that if we can limit warming to the range of the Paris Agreement well below 2C, we're going to be way better off than if we end up with even hotter temperatures. So when we think about minimizing the pressures for displacement, minimizing the amount of climate change that occurs is, is where the conversation should start. When we get past that, it gets into an area where 
you know, I'm not sure that there are going to be kind of standard criteria list that policymakers can be looking at that say, uh, at this temperature, this is the number of people who are going to have to move. Because displacement is so contingent on other things that are happening, the number of people that are likely to move is, is going to continue to be highly uncertain. There are lots of efforts to do thorough analyses of the information that's available, but the set of interacting possibilities is so large that we'll never be in a situation where we can do something other than play out the consequences of particular scenarios that are more illustrative than really being predictions. We know there are going to be some places that are under profound challenges. You know, an example is the city of Miami in Florida is low-lying and it's built on a very porous rock formation such that even coastal protection doesn't avoid a lot of the flooding. But in wealthy areas like Miami, around the world, what we have seen is that, you know, massive dis- deployment of, of pumping systems can make a difference. And we've seen that kind of creative identification of, of which of the areas that should be allowed to flood and how you can improve drainage by improving urban layout can really make a difference. I'm uh, confident that we will see more and more displacement, but we need to remember that it should always be considered a uh, second, third, or fourth best option. Right. So, you know, I guess to some degree, this kind of leads into the question of, you know, as individuals, we're thinking about this. Sounds like, you know, first and foremost, the priority remains, how do we mitigate our emissions um, to avoid, you know, higher levels of warming? Um, But if people are hearing this and thinking that they'd like to be able to get involved and support efforts to, you know, avoid displacement to help, I guess, with climate adaptation, what would you suggest? When I think about what individuals can do, the solutions really fall into three buckets. I think of them as lifestyle, invest style, and vote style. Lifestyle, it's really impressive how much individuals can do. Probably the most important thing people can do is think about their transportation options. An electric vehicle is an obvious choice. You can also look around your home, heat pump heater, induction cooktop, heat pump water heater, all those things make sense economically. They're wonderful financial incentives out there for them. And they, they really do transition us away from being reliant on fossil fuels, especially on the kind of end of pipe methane technologies, which tend to be quite leaky. And of course, home insulation and being really uh, thoughtful about aircraft travel and, and using offsets when you do aircraft travel. All things that can happen in terms of of lifestyle. Oh, also in terms of lifestyle, people should think about their diet, recognizing that consumption of meat, especially red meat, has a really large climate footprint. And just backing off on one or two servings of red meat a week can really make a difference. In terms of investile, you know, a lot of us don't really think of ourselves as, as investors, but we almost all are in terms of retirement programs or the um, 
public pensions that we may be a part of and, you know, making sure that whatever investments we make are being made in, in climate friendly ways, favoring those corporations that are most likely to lead into the future and most likely to generate good economic returns, but also are pushing us away from the legacy industries that are that are causing climate change and, and pulling away the funds that allow them to often be bad actors in the climate space. And then third, in terms of vote style, it, it's really important to remember that a lot of the solutions to the climate crisis need to come as a consequence of government action, government action at the city level, at the state level, and at the national level. And in recent elections, we've had a really clear partisan difference between which party advocated for climate solutions and which one didn't. And if we want to solve the climate crisis, we have to elect politicians who advocate for ambitious, just, and rapid action. Well, that's that's a lot of good options for people to get involved. And I like the sort of the spectrum from, you know, individual things you could do right there in your home to, you know, on the on the advocacy side. Well, Chris, I just want to say thanks for coming on to the show, you know, sharing a wealth of knowledge with us on kind of the climate displacement problem and how best to avoid it. And thanks for all you do in, in your field. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you very much for the chance. Well, Flora, Thomas, what did you think of the interview with Chris? Oh my gosh. I, I thought he did a really great job. I feel like I learned a ton and I was kind of looking afterwards and honestly, it's impressive that he did what he did with as, you know, as few statistics are, are really out there. I was digging for them and I feel like it's pretty hard to find, you know, really reliable stuff considering how much of a multiplier climate change is, which is something that Chris spoke to instead of often the driving factor. But IDMC, which is the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center has some really good data. They found that in 2022, natural disasters were the catalyst for 32.6 million internal displacements. So that migration that's happening within a country. Wow. And of that 32.6 million, I know, 98% was due to weather-related disasters like floods, storms, wildfires, drought. All those things that we know are made far, far worse and far, far more frequent by climate change. That's massive. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy mm-hmm. to hear that 98% of them are weather-related. I mean, we know that not every weather event can obviously be you know, attributed to climate change, but we know, to your point, that climate change is making you know, almost all natural disasters weather-related worse. Yeah, absolutely. I also found um, when I was looking into that, that countries like Pakistan, Philippines, China, India, and Nigeria were those that saw the most internal displacement, which... I thought was just another great reminder of the fact that climate change is, like Chris said, and I just stated, a multiplier. It's something that exacerbates issues that often are, you know, already teetering on the edge from government and economic instability to food security, job security, and more. Yeah. And, you know, in listening to Chris, I guess I kind of took away something related, which was, you Mm -hmm. know, when he talked about his greatest concern is sort of this, the impact of like, climate change and, and poor countries, that you know, those two things kind of coming together and how, you know, that often leads to, you know, putting a strain on government institutions. If you, you know, didn't already have instability 
which then hinders the ability of a nation to to adapt, which then makes them more vulnerable, and, and the cycle just sort of oh, continues, yeah. and to the point you know where you end up with with you know what are called failed states, and we obviously don't want more of that because then you know regardless of whether you could potentially stay where you are if you don't have the infrastructure, the money to do it, then you know then you have massive uh, displacement. And I, I think it's also important to keep in mind that in a lot of these regions in the world that we've been discussing, we've sort of reached our carrying capacity. And if you look back at you know, funding for family planning globally that had come from the US um, up until the Trump administration, that had steadily risen to about $600 million a, a year. The Biden administration has reinstated that funding, which I think is really important for these these regions of the world that have been pushed by climate change. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Many women in the world, many millions, still don't you know have access to to family planning, and so yeah, I think it's a it's the least we could do to to help out. You know, I guess in that same vein, there are a couple like very good sort of indices out there that look at which nations are kind of the most vulnerable or least ready to to deal with climate change. And maybe not surprisingly, a lot of those uh, you could find in Africa, the the Middle East, and in, in island nations. And yeah, I think it is really this sort of these series of factors that come together and where, you know, climate change just really exacerbates, as Flora said. You know, you can take an area like Somalia, you know, folks have probably heard about the horrible droughts they were facing and then this last fall turned into huge floods. And, you know, right now you're looking at about, I've seen figures like 4.3 million that are that are facing hunger. So, you know, combination of things coming together, but because Somalia, you know, is war-torn, already poor, the climate impacts, you know, have a much greater impact. Well, I guess to follow on about what David Pocock said earlier uh, along the lines of, you know, the wealthy nations need to step up to the plate and do something about this. As we've seen the Australian government do at the end of last year, they reached out to the Pacific nations around Australia and said, hey, you know, we will now offer you visas to Australia. And so these visas are basically um, a way of helping those countries that are low-lying, such as Tuvalu, which is only a couple of metres above sea level, to assist with the relocation of those whose homes are threatened by sea level change right now. But it does ring a little bit hollow though, because last year Australia's CO2 emissions increased by 1% and it's not looking like we'll hit the targets that we're supposed to be hitting. You know, because really the big threat to these people is climate change in Australia is one of the worst per capita emitters in the world. Yeah, that's that's troubling to hear. I don't think the U.S. is in a different position. I mean, we tend to, you know, write small checks when the reality is the biggest impact that we're having on these low lying nations is is climate change. So the, the you know, yes, we need to be helping out. Yes, we need to be writing bigger checks, but we also need to be cutting our emissions. Yeah, that's um, the best thing that we could do for a lot of these places. I think the other thing that's important is that we're investing in sort of the most economical solutions out there for addressing climate change or for adapting to climate change, given that we only have so many dollars. And I think a couple of areas that are really key are going to be, you know, helping uh, small farmers around the world. They produce over, you know, a third of the world's food, 
feed billions of people and they tend to be you know more vulnerable to to climate impacts uh, and I think another area that's going to be really key is investing in you know nature-based solutions things like you know mangroves that protect coastlines while at the same time sequestering carbon or you know mm-hmm. wetland restoration that reduces the risk of flooding and also you know helps store and clean water so you really, you know, Mother Nature is one of the best returns on investment you can get when it comes to a climate solution. We need to be pushing more money that way. That's a really great point, Jason. I feel like I was stumbling upon that a lot too. Um, There was this awesome quote that I read in a New York Times article that was talking about urban areas in Singapore, which can have just this incredible heat difference uh, between urban areas up to like six degrees Celsius difference between urban areas and rural areas which is astounding. And there's a huge movement there to get more trees back into the cities, planting them, but then also providing the finance to actually treat those as, you know, a climate investment, as as real infrastructure, not as something that we just plant and then leave alone. But there was this awesome quote in the article um, by an engineer who's named Brian Stone Jr., the director of Urban Climate Lab at Georgia Institute of Tech, And he said, if you wanted to invent the most effective kind of climate management technology from the ground up, you could spend a lot of time trying to do that. You would just engineer a tree, which I thought was clever and, you know, an important point. Yeah, it is still important that we continue to highlight these things and say, great, it's fantastic that we're doing some of these positive things, but we've got to get on top of this fossil fuel expansion and bring it to a halt very rapidly. I take the Australian government, for example, who still support the Barrett Gas Hub, which will have as many emissions as all of Australia combined for 13 years straight, just from one gas project. Yeah, I mean, and not all the blame sits with Australia. Um, you know, the, <laughs> the US and and other developing countries are continuing to expand their fossil fuel infrastructure. So you can't say on the one hand that you're taking climate change seriously and then continuing to drill. Well, with that, uh, let's talk about uh, what you know each of us can do to help with the issue of climate displacement. And we've got two options this week. The first, we'd like to ask folks everywhere, because it's an issue everywhere, to um, push your elected officials, send them an email, and ask them to increase climate finance contributions. There's a lot of different funds out there all intended to help these developing countries adapt and become less vulnerable. We'll have talking points on our website. And then the second option that we've also highlighted is is to take the opportunity to look and see if your community has a climate resiliency plan in place. And if they don't, another opportunity to call on your local elected officials to try to implement one. Well, I think that's a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Uh, Our next episode will be dropping on March 12th, so tune back in then. And as a reminder, as Thomas pointed out earlier, we really want to hear from you about your actions you've taken to help address climate change. Uh, Take a moment to submit a comment on our website, send us a message over social media, whatever's easiest, but we do want to hear from you. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. Mm-hmm.